Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel, Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Amen. Well, we are in, as I think I just said, Mark chapter 9, uh, moving our way. Three weeks in Mark 8, we graduated, look at us, uh, and now we are here are in chapter 9. Let me begin by just saying this. Uh, let me remind you that the divisions that we have in our Bible, chapter 9, chapter 10, the verses that we have in the, our Bibles, they weren't in the original uh, manuscripts that were written. Uh, they were added later on, um, sort of in this uh, kind of this process of things. First they added chapters and they began to add verses over the years. And that was designed just to make it a little bit easier to navigate our Bibles. They didn't change the words that were written in there. They just added little numbers uh, to make it a little easier. And so, like we said, it's a lot easier to hold up John 3.16 than to say, about this far, you know, in your Bible or something like that. And so when I say turn to Mark chapter 9, you can go right there uh, because we have those types of things. The problem is every now and again in our Bibles, we have a situation where it seems now we look at it that maybe they broke the chapter up in the wrong place. Uh, Maybe they divided a story uh, in a portion or something like that. And I think we have that example today because it seems to me, and we'll we'll take a look at it together and you can make your own determination. It seems to me that we have a situation where the first verse of what we call Mark chapter 9 really should probably go as the last verse of Mark chapter 8. And so look back to where we were last week, Mark chapter 8. It says, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Mark closes that chapter, or at least how we describe it, with a reference to Jesus' coming in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's Jesus' second coming. And so it's looking at the return of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again. And to bring you to where, the, where I am, you may also be. We read that uh, in the scriptures. And we see his return in scripture. I'd encourage you, take a look at it sometime. Revelation chapter 19 talks about the glorious return of Jesus Christ. Robin talked earlier about our trip that's going to be going to Israel in about two years. Uh, And when we go to the the plains of Megiddo, uh, we look off over kind of our left shoulder. You look out over the plains of Megiddo and we look off to our left shoulder because the scripture says Christ is going to return in this area from the east and he's going to come and he's going to reveal himself and so on. And so we kind of just peek because someday it's going to happen. The scripture is very clear about it and documents uh, that particular event as John is given revelation. And so Mark here then in our passage, he is talking about the return of Christ. The second half of that thought, it continues into chapter 9, verse 1. Look at this, it says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now the train of thought is the glory of Jesus Christ. However, uh, 8.38 is referring to the second coming. Chapter 9, verse 1 is not referring to the second coming. Because he makes the statement there, some that are standing here, the people that were standing with him were his disciples. And he says, some of you that are standing here, uh, you will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Well, every one of those disciples, those 12 apostles, they all died. And we, we spent some time looking at that. They, they all uh, suffered a martyr's death. John, if you will, suffered a martyr's life as he was exiled to the island of Patmos and eventually died of old age, all the rest of them were killed for their faith. And so they did taste death. 
and they didn't see the second coming of Jesus Christ. So either Jesus got it wrong, or Jesus was talking about a different revelation of his glory. And I'm going to suggest to you today the revelation of his glory that he is speaking of is what we're going to read about in the next 10 verses. Mark chapter 9, verse 2, and following from there, where Jesus is transfigured before their eyes. Maybe you're familiar with it. But where Jesus' glory that had been concealed by his earthly body was revealed temporarily to these three men that he brought up on the hill there with him, Peter, James, and John. Peter describes this event in his uh, New Testament epistle, and he says this, and these are great words. He said, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now you say, well, I wonder what he's talking about. Well, he, I'm going to suggest to you, he's talking about the transfiguration. And you say, well, maybe. Well, notice what he goes on to say. For when, we had, uh, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the, bo- the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. That's the cloud, the Shekinah glory of God. And the voice said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He also said, listen to him as we'll see later on today. Um, This is my beloved son. Now, as we go and look at our passage today, look for that terminology. Look for those things there. Peter, in 1 Peter, is describing the transfiguration of Christ that he was privileged uh, to be able to look in on as he's there with James and John. So let's start our passage, starting uh, again in verse 1. It says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here, who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Verse 2, now after six days, and that's why I think there's a break there, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Do you see the connections there with what Peter reveals in his, uh, his epistle? about the glory of the cloud, the voice speaking, this is my beloved son, and so on and so forth. Peter there is describing that particular event. event. And so as Jesus closed out chapter 8, he did so with heavy words, didn't he? In the last five or six verses, where he says to them that he's going to go and he's going to suffer, be betrayed by the leaders, die three days later, rise again, and so on. Remember, Peter heard those words, and he says, no, don't talk like this. And Jesus has to rebuke him. Get behind me, Satan. You don't really know what you're saying. You know, your words, as well-meaning as they may be, are not the will of God. I must go to Jerusalem, he says there. And then Jesus also said those heavy words, where essentially he said to the disciples, and you too must be willing to die if you want to follow me. Remember, that's when he said, take up your cross, come after me. And why do you take up a cross? You take up a cross to die. And so Jesus is speaking about his pending death. He's telling his disciples they must be ready to die as well. Those are kind of heavy words. 
Imagine if you're in that conversation, to some degree you might be thinking, I'm out of here. This is not what I signed up for. I don't really like this here. And so Jesus then couches the very difficult comments that he made about his death and their likely death and his glory. And it's so important to keep those two things in perspective. And the Lord realizes this and he knows this. And so while he talks about his death, what does he always point to? His resurrection. While he talks about his humiliation, essentially, he points back to his glory as well. He uh, balances things, if you will, for his disciples. And so let's look at this event. Verse 2, six days Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John, and they go up to a high mountain by themselves where he was transfigured. Six days uh, after the previous events that we looked at, he goes up on this high mountain. Now we suspect the mountain, there, there's a traditional site, Mount Tabor. Uh, if somebody tells you this is the traditional site of something in Israel, it's likely not the site of something in Israel, um, but it made a good place for a church and a, a gift shop. Uh, the traditional, or the likely spot of this particular event is the, the highest of mounts in Israel, still today, that's kind of dumb, that statement, but it's still the highest mount, even today. They haven't built a bigger one. Um, and that's Mount Hermon, uh, which is up in the Golan Heights there. It's, you go online, look it up, it's a great place now. You can go skiing there. There's always snow at the top of Mount Hermon. When you're uh, in the Golan Heights, you can see it in a distance, the white cap mountains that are there. And I, I showed you a picture uh, or a map, I should say. You have to skip a little bit ahead there. I'm sorry, uh, Kevin. Um, but you recall when we were talking about Jesus left the, the area of the Galilee. Remember this? I showed this map, same map that we showed two, three weeks ago. Uh, and first we saw that he was at Bethsaida. I think that's going to be circled in red, maybe. No? Yeah. And see that there in red. And then he went north. And he went north about 40 miles or so. To, uh, it was closer to 30 miles or so to Caesarea Philippi. And there Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? Outside of Jewish area, he makes his way up there. He's clearly getting away with his disciples. Six days after that, he goes even further north, and I think we have that in green there for you. That's where Mount Hermon is. Now, Mount Tabor is down by the Sea of Galilee. I wish I circled it. It's down by the Sea of Galilee on your way about halfway to the Mediterranean Sea. And so Jesus goes all the way up there, and then he runs down to Mount Tabor, and then he comes back up to the Philippi area. No, he's probably gone to Mount Hermon. Now, that's going to help you. When you're in traffic, you're frustrated, you're angry, just remember Jesus went to Mount Hermon, and your life will be better. All right? Uh, I'm teasing. All right? Anyway, he brings with him there three disciples, Peter, James, and John. These three disciples seem to be Jesus' closest of his disciples. There's three different instances in the Bible where Jesus takes these three men and only these three men and he goes and he, he does something. When the little girl was raised, he brought with him Peter, James, and John. When he's in the garden praying, he has all his disciples with him, but he gets a little bit away with Peter, James, and John, and then he gets a little bit further away from them. And he says, you guys stay here and watch and you pray. I'm going to go over there and pray. For some reason, these particular three disciples... Well, John would go on to live another 75 years or so, be the oldest of the disciples. Maybe that's why Jesus spent even a little bit more time with him. Peter would go on to essentially be the leader of the church in so many ways. 
Maybe that's why. James dies relatively quickly, but he's John's brother, so I bring him along, or something like that. I don't really know. So, so for whatever reason, Jesus did. Some people say, no, it's not anything about them having a place of honor. It's that they were the three knuckleheads and needed to stay the closest. Uh, I don't think that might, then maybe, uh, who knows. Uh, but for whatever reason, he brings these guys here with him. They go up to Mount Hermon, uh, and it says there in verse 2 that he was transfigured before them. Not a word we use a lot in normal language here. But it's a word which means to change into another form or to transform. Interesting in Greek, it's the word metamorpho, where you, you know the sound metamorphosis. We think of the, the caterpillar that goes through a metamorphosis and becomes a butterfly. Well, that's what happened with Jesus. He metamorphosized there in front of them. He went from a Jewish carpenter guy in his mid-30s to the Lord of glory in front of them there. I, uh, now, you might look at it and you might say, well, a bright light shined down on him. That's not what it says. It, metamorphosis, it's to change from the inside. I, I picture Superman when he, he kind of, or Clark Kent, and he kind of pulls his little shirt and the, apart, right? You know what I'm talking about, everybody? And then you see, like, Superman does whatever Superman does there. That's what Jesus did, essentially. He opened up, uh, he revealed his glory that had previously been concealed. And he shows it to these men. It's not the primary purpose of it, but he shows it to these men. It says in Matthew 17, 2, that his face shone like the sun. The words that Mark uses is, his clothes became radiant, intensely white. And for a brief period of time, 10 minutes, an hour, who knows, but for a brief period of time, the Lord of glory appeared in the presence of his disciples there. Henry Ironside, he describes it this way. He said, the transcendent glory of his deity, it shone out through the veil of his flesh, thus changing his appearance in such a way as to fill his disciples with amazement and oppressing, impressing them with a sense of his mysterious personality. They had been with him. They had walked with him. They knew that he was something special. But in some regards, he was still the greatest of all men. Now they revealed, now they got an insight into his glory. And they saw beyond his humanity, and they were amazed. It says, Mark describes it, that they were terrified. They were freaking out. They weren't just a little bit scared or worried or, this is unusual, I'm, I'm uneasy right now. It, it says, and the word means, that they were frightened and they were terrified. That they could not um, take it all in here. And Jesus momentarily reveals to them the reality of his glory. Without a word, he just shows them. Now, without a word, I think Jesus is communicating this to them. And I jotted it down here in the words of Jesus, if you will. And he says, yes, I must suffer and I must be rejected by the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. But that will in no way lessen the glory that will be mine when I return with my angels nor will it in any way lessen the glory that is already mine. And then he opens up the shirt, so to speak, and the glory comes flooding forth. And he has couched his suffering with his glory for his disciples to take in. He's laid before that the disciples this path of reproach, but at the same time, he reminds them, nobody's taking my life from me. 
These things aren't spinning wildly out of control. I'm the Lord of glory. And he gives them a glimpse. A glimpse. John chapter 10, Jesus said, I lay my life down that I may take it up again. Notice he says, nobody takes it from me. The chief priests don't take it from me. The scribes don't take it from me. The elders don't take it from me. I lay it down. I'm the Lord of glory. It says in another place, I could call a legion of angels to come down right now. And yet he doesn't. He says, I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up, which is the charge that I have received from my father. I can't imagine these three disciples ever forgot that moment in the presence of glory. Would you? Certainly not. And Peter recalls it. John says something similar in the first chapter of the gospel of John, where it says we beheld his glory. Now, I'll be honest with you, I don't know exactly why we have this event uh, in the history of things, in Jesus' life. I don't know why he went through this moment of transfiguration, but I would suggest at least partially it serves the purpose of empowering these three disciples as they're about to encounter things. Remember, we're only four months away or so from the crucifixion of Christ. And so this event, at the very least, is going to empower them for the work that is ahead of them there. Now notice here, Jesus is metamorphosized, if that's a word. He's changed, he's transfigured. Notice also that two men appear with him. It says, look at their name, see if you can find it in your little study. I get thirsty. It was Elijah and Moses, very good. It said there appeared to them Elijah with Moses who were talking with Jesus. Now, Elijah died 800, well, he didn't die, he was taken 800 years earlier. Moses died 1,500 years earlier, maybe a little less than that. And so, in addition to the Lord revealing his glory, in, in some small way, Peter, James, and John are ushered into eternity as well, because there now they behold Elijah and Moses, who are standing there with the Lord and talking to the Lord. Now Moses, you, I imagine you know who he is. He represents the law. We know Moses is the author of the first five books of our Bible, which we call the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the law. Moses represents the law of God. Elijah represents the prophets of God. And so here is Jesus now, and he's with the sum, if you will, of God's Old Testament revelation standing there talking with Moses, standing there talking with Elijah on what we have come to know as the Mount of Transfiguration. And the disciples see this and they know this. Now I want to just give you a quick aside here. Notice that Peter, James, and John, they're observing this scene. They're a little off on the side. They're observing this scene. Peter jumps in uh, as he often does. He says, it's good that we are here. How about we build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now question, how does Jesus, or excuse me, how does Peter know who Moses is? And how does Peter know who Elijah is? Well, Will suggested it was probably name badge Sunday. And so they had a little name badge there. And so that's how. Well, this, the text doesn't say that, as I reminded uh, Will. Uh, some, perhaps I should say, maybe Peter said, Psst, Lord, who's your friends? And he said, oh, this is Moses and Elijah. Well, the text doesn't say that as well. What the, the text implies is that Peter, James, and John, at least Peter, just knew. That's Moses. That's Elijah. Even though Moses lived 1,500 years earlier, Elijah lived 800 years earlier. That's who they are. They just knew. 
And I bring it up because people sometimes ask the question, do you think we'll know one another in heaven? Do you think we'll know one another in heaven? I think you will not only know one another in heaven, I think you will know every other saint that is in heaven as they will know you. And Moses will come up to you and be like, hey, you're the fella from Mercer County. You're a cool dude. And I remember you. All right, and I'll know your name. We're going to know one another in heaven. You're not going to know less in heaven. You're going to know more. You're going to know even as you're fully known. So that's just a little bonus material just to encourage you about heaven. So we go back on, notice, look at verse 4. Jesus there is talking with Moses and Elijah. Mark doesn't tell us what they're talking about, but Luke does, which is helpful and interesting. Once again, one of the reasons why we like to look at the parallel passages, especially in the Gospels. And so in uh, Luke chapter 9, we read that it says they spoke about his departure. Moses and Elijah spoke with Jesus about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Remember the last time Jerusalem came up, Jesus said the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem to suffer and to die and to rise again. And so they're speaking with Jesus here about his coming crucifixion. Now, what about that crucifixion? The text doesn't tell us. It doesn't specifically say what about his departure they're looking at here. And so we, everything that we offer is just conjecture on this. It could be that Jesus is explaining to Moses and Elijah, much like he ex- tried to explain to the disciples, that the Son of Man, the Messiah, must go and suffer and die in Jerusalem. So maybe that's what he is doing there. And maybe uh, he's explaining that. Maybe... They are encouraging the Lord. Maybe the Lord's a little down about this idea that he has to go. That doesn't seem kosher for me. That doesn't seem to fit. You know, really, these created beings need to encourage the Lord about what he was sent to do. But I'm reminded that when Jesus was in the garden and when Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted, on two different occasions, the angels came and ministered encouragement to him, and they're created beings too, and so perhaps they're coming to encourage him. I I don't know uh, exactly here, but they're talking about the crucifixion. Something is going on here in this conversation related to Jesus' coming uh, departure from the earth. Now, Peter, you ever feel like Peter? You ever do what Peter does? Peter decides, this is so awesome, what's going on here, that I need to get involved. Uh, I have to interject. He feels, as it says here, essentially compelled to interrupt. Notice he says, Rabbi, I don't mean to interrupt you and Moses and Elijah in this cool conversation you're having, but Rabbi, I'm going to. It's good that we are here. It's good that I am here. Have you ever said that when you come in somewhere? You know, hi, everyone. It's good that I am here. You know, that's what he says. Rabbi, it's good that we are here. The other two disciples like, we're not with you. You know what I mean? You interrupted. He says, let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, the next verse is the most telling of this. Because we might read that and we're like, oh, how nice of him. But look at the next verse. It says, because he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And so he didn't know what to say, so he says something. Already, uh, And here's the valuable lesson, not, certainly not what the passage is about, but the valuable lesson is this. If you don't know what to say, it's okay to say nothing. It's okay to just sit there. There's that old expression, uh, better to keep your mouth shut and let people think you're a fool than to open it and dispel all doubt. 
All right? It's okay to say nothing in certain circumstances. And I'm sure many of you, I've been in that situation, but you've been in a room and you want to uh, solidify the value of your presence in that room. And so you interject something into the conversation that ends up being dumb. And everyone's like, who invited you into this room? You know? And so it doesn't typically go very well. But here's Peter. We've already saw that he was terrified. He's freaked out. And so in that fear, he feels, I have to say something. And so he does. And he blurts out that it's good that we're here. He mentions this idea of building three tents. Some of your versions might use the word tabernacles. Some might use the word booths or shelters. These three temporary dwellings, much when they, like when they celebrated, the Jews did the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a celebration of their time in the wilderness journey. And so mom and dad, they'd pick up the kids, they'd go out into the wilderness, and they'd build these little temporary shelters that were out there. The scripture told, told them to do that, to remind them of the time where the, their forefathers there wandered through the wilderness. And so it's, that's the term that our friend uh, Peter is using here. Let's build three shelters here, three tabernacles. Three, let's set up camp up here on the mountain. It seems Peter never wants to leave this mountain. He's on the highest mountain, way to the north of the area of Israel, outside, actually, of where the Jews were living. At that particular point in time, it takes, I don't know how long, hours, days, whatever, to get up to the top of this mountain, to set up there. They embrace this glory. And you know what's not there on the mountain? No talk about a cross, right? No talk about being betrayed. Just the, glory, the Lord of glory. And Peter loves it. Have you ever been on a retreat? And you just had the time of your life and there's nobody screaming and yelling and cursing and saying this and backstabbing. And you're just in your own little heaven. And you think to yourself, maybe we could buy some land up here. Maybe all of us, we could all buy land up here and I could farm and, you know, they could raise cattle and it would just be sweet and it would be heavenly up here. You ever been there? Ever done it? I know some of you have. I've done it. I know that guy right there. He did it. He wanted to do it too. And so that's kind of what Peter is saying. He said, ah, this is what it's about. It's not about a cross. It's about glory. It's about rest. It's about being embraced in the warmness of God. Oh, I just love it here. Let's never leave. Lord, let's build three uh, shelters here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. We'll send flyers out. People can make their way up here. Those that are committed, they'll come. The rest, eh, they won't even bother. We don't want them. And we'll just rest up here. Well, if that's Peter's mindset, again, notice he neglects everything Jesus has been trying to say over the last week, that the Son of Man must suffer and be betrayed and be crucified, and three days later rise again. Peter, if that's his mindset about let's just sit up here in God's glory, then he's forgotten all about the, the cross of Jesus Christ. Notice inadvertently, Peter does another thing, and I, I don't know if this is intent. I seriously doubt it's his intent, but inadvertently, another thing that Peter does, when he offers to build a booth for Elijah and for Moses and another one there for Jesus, inadvertently, Peter has just placed Jesus on the same plane as Moses and Elijah. And Jesus isn't on the same plane. You see, another reason why these booths may have been built is uh, it was not uncommon 
for a rabbi. When they were down in Jerusalem, you may recall, they went to the Temple Mount area, and a rabbi would take his people off to the side, his disciples off to the side, and they would sit under the portico, the porches covered, kind of like a, a lattice-covered roof there, just enough to be in the shade. Maybe there's some uh, greenery growing up there or something. And there they would sit and they would teach their people. Well, if they weren't down in Jerusalem, they would set up a little shack somewhere else sometimes. And the people would come and they would get out of the sun and they would listen and they would learn. And it's possible another reason what thing that Peter is suggesting here is we'll set up a spot for Elijah, a spot for Moses, a spot for you. People can come up, they can sit, they can listen, they can learn. It'll be sweet and it'll be beautiful. Now, inadvertently, again, notice what Jesus did, or Peter did. He puts Jesus on the same plane as Elijah and Moses. Elijah and Moses, wonderful, great. Perhaps two of the greatest saints in the history of the world. But they're not equal to Jesus. Jesus created Moses and Elijah. Moses, you recall, the law, what did the law do? The law was given to show that we can't keep the law so that we would look for another answer, and the other answer is the cross of Jesus Christ. You cannot be perfect. You cannot leave, keep the law in its entirety. And so the law reveals your need that only God can solve, and he solves that at the cross. The whole purpose of the law is to point people to Jesus Christ. The whole purpose, purpose of the prophets is to predict about the coming of Jesus Christ and what that coming will be like, and how the people should prepare themselves for that coming. And so both the law and the prophets are pointing to Jesus. They're not on the same plane. Jesus is high and above, and those ministries point to him. Well, Peter doesn't know what to say. He says what comes to mind. Unfortunately, this is a bad week for Peter. Once again, he's rebuked. You recall the last time he was rebuked, a week earlier, where he told Jesus to stop talking about his death. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You do not know of what you speak or the things you speak are not of the Lord, he says to him here. Well, here a week later, he's getting rebuked once again, this time from the voice from heaven. Okay, God from heaven, that voice. It's one thing for Jesus to rebuke Jesus, God and all that, but he's in sort of his human body, you know, so we, we can relate. Mom yells at me, that kind of thing. Well, now there's a voice from heaven that speaks and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Notice it says a cloud overshadowed them. They were enveloped in this cloud. And if you read between the lines, you can see the word shh. That's what the father is saying. Shh, be quiet. You need to stop talking. He says, just listen. Listen to them. And he's corrected for speaking out of his nervousness, which again, sometimes we do, but we should stop. And he is also corrected for putting Jesus on the same plane as Moses and Elijah. The one they need to listen to is not Moses. The one they need to listen to is not Elijah. The one they need to listen to is Jesus. From the cloud, the voice speaks. Now, the Bible speaks a lot about a cloud representing the presence of God. The rabbis, it's not found in your Bibles, uh, the rabbis called that cloud uh, the Shekinah. And you recall when the children of Israel were coming out of slavery, they were led by the, the cloud uh, by day and a pillar of fire by night. That cloud was the presence of God. Like I said, the rabbis call it the Shekinah. 
We see that God, when Moses went up on Mount Sinai, the top of the mountain was enveloped in the glory of God. Not just any old cloud, but the glory of God. And Moses met there with God in that Shekinah glory. When the temple was dedicated and Solomon prayed, we read this in 2 Chronicles, when Solomon prayed, when he finished his prayer, it says that the temple was enveloped in the cloud of God's glory. And God's presence, if you will, took up residence in a special way. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But in a special way, it took up residence in the Holy of Holies there. That's the glory of God. And that glory of God appeared uh, in response, if you will, to Peter's words, enveloped Peter, and the voice speaks, this is my son, uh, listen to him. Quite a rebuke there. Now, Matthew adds something that Mark doesn't tell us. It says that when that cloud came that, and that voice came from that cloud, that the disciples, they fell on their faces terrified. And we already read they were terrified when they saw the glory of Jesus Christ. Now they're terrified by this particular voice and they fall down on their faces. Matthew will then go on to say, but Jesus then came over to them, touched them, and said to them, rise and have no fear. And it's as he does that, as he goes over and he touches them, his glory, which had been revealed, dissipates and he returns back to a 30-something carpenter of uh, Israel. And the cloud of God's glory goes away. And then these men, they lift their heads, they open their eyes again. I imagine they were hiding their faces uh, in their arms there. And, they, and everything's back to normal. But nothing will ever be normal again for them because they saw the glory of Jesus Christ. Moses is gone, it says. Elijah is gone. And all they see is Jesus. Suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Mark chapter 9, verse 8 says. And that's it. Not for us, but that's it for them on that scenario. Now look what happens in verse 9. And so they leave. They begin to head down the mountain. It says, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus charged them not to tell, to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And we see Jesus doing that a lot. Imagine trying to be James, John, and Peter and not tell anybody about that experience. Peter, why is your hair standing straight up? I don't know, you know, a little punk thing I'm working on here. You know, I don't know. You know, don't tell anyone about this. Now remember, Jesus has been trying to convey this message that the Messiah has come to give his life. If these guys come down and say, you should see his glory, it's remarkable, we saw it, it's almost like they got to go all the way back to the start, starting point again, forget my glory, I wish I would have never shown you, you know, forget about that, I'm going to give my life here. He, so he, he tells them not to tell anyone and again, imagine trying to keep that secret. Remarkably, they keep the secret. Somehow they come down, they keep the secret here. Verse 10 says, so they kept the matter to themselves. Good for them. All right, talk about that self-control. But they began to question, what does this rising from the dead, what, what does that mean? He keeps coming back to that. They don't tell anyone about that experience then, but they do have a question they want to ask Jesus. Now, of course, they're eventually going to tell people. We know the story. 
because they did eventually tell people, but they, they do so later on. Luke says this, they kept silent and no one in those days, they told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. And so later on they convey it, just like we read in 1 Peter chapter, I think it was 3, they, they explained, he explains it there. Later on they told people about it, but in that moment in time they don't tell anything. But they do want to talk about this idea of Jesus' rising from the dead, uh, the Messiah coming. Where's Elijah that the scribes were talking about? Lord, we don't understand all this. We're, we're having trouble putting the pieces of this puzzle together. And so they pose the question. Look at verse nine, 11. It says, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Now, you remember the scribes, they were pretty much enemies of the Lord. But the scribes knew the word of God. They, they just sort of didn't live it out. The scribes were the experts in the law. I was reading this week in my quiet time. The first scribe, anyone know who the first scribe was in the Bible? Ezra was the first scribe in the Bible. And Ezra's rock solid. He's the best. And he had this group of people that were with him, and they were great. But over, I don't know when Ezra, uh, 500 years or so, it had degenerated into this group of just basically know-it-alls. And so these scribes, they knew the minute details of the Bible. And, and they knew things, you're like, that's in the Bible? And they're like, uh-huh, it's right there, boom, boom, boom. And they would tell you where it's located. One of those things they knew is that before the coming of the Messiah, Elijah would come. And that's found in Malachi, uh, excuse me, Malachi chapter 4. Let's read it here. It says, Behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before, that's what they said, the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He's going to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers, hearts of the fathers to their children, uh, and I'm going to come and strike the land with utter destruction. So they were correct that before the coming of the Messiah, Elijah would come first. But I want you to notice something about the rest of that particular passage. So yes, it says before uh, the Messiah, Elijah the prophet is going to come. But look at all the other things that are in there. It says before the great and awesome day of the Lord, before the decree of utter destruction. Now you looking back with 2020 hindsight, does that seem to be describing what you know to be the first coming of Jesus Christ? That's describing the second coming of Jesus Christ. His glorious return uh, and the battle of Armageddon, all those things that we read about in the book of Revelation. And so what the scribes had done is what many of the Jews had done, what the disciples themselves had done, is they essentially looked past those prophecies about Jesus' first coming and they focused in on those prophecies about the Messiah's second coming. And so when he says here, uh, what about or when they say, well, what about Elijah coming first? Jesus reminds them, uh, or, or they are reminded of, I should say, the Malachi prophecy that the scribes spoke of and taught about. But they're looking for the second coming. Now, these three disciples here have already concluded that Jesus was the Messiah. We saw that earlier. Who do people say that I am? Well, some say this, some say this, some say that. Who do you say that I am? You're the Messiah. Okay, now they're trying to figure out exactly what that means. So they know Jesus is the Messiah, so where's Elijah, Lord? Elijah's supposed to come first, that's what the scribes are saying. Why do they say that? Elijah must come first. And it's not a question that comes from a place of disbelief. You're not the Messiah, because if you were, Elijah would come. It's not that kind of a question at all. It's a question much like Mary asked when she was told that she would 
um, carry the Messiah. And she says, well, wait a minute, but I've never known a man. She's not, being, she's not coming forth in disbelief. She's coming in misunderstanding. I don't get it. How can these things be, she would say there. And that's what these disciples are. We know you're the Messiah, but where's Elijah that is coming? And so Jesus now, he answers the question, but in doing so, he poses another question. And so if you look at verse 12 of our passage, he says, Elijah does come first to restore all things, just like that passage says. Right? He's going to turn the heart of the fathers to the children and so on. He says, but how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? See what he does. They're thinking of the glorious return and Elijah preceding that. Jesus says, yep, that's going to happen. But he says, but what about those scripture passages that talk about the Son of Man, the Messiah, that's what the, word, the phrase means, being treated with contempt? Jesus reminds them once again of what he's been trying to tell them for the last week or longer. So he says to them, look, you're right that Elijah does come prior to the coming of the Messiah. But what about all those passages that talk about the Messiah being killed? Did you forget about those guys? Did you ignore those because you didn't like what they said? What about those particular passages? Once again, he draws the contrast between his first coming and his second coming for these disciples. And once more, he forces them to consider all of God's word and not perhaps just the passages that they like and that they enjoy. And who doesn't want the glory of God? And I get to sit on your right hand and left hand. Last week, I pointed you to Isaiah 53. Remember some of those words? They forgot these passages. The one that says he was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. He was before his like a sheep before its shearers is silent. Or in chapter 53, verse 10, that it was the will of the Lord to crush the Messiah and to cause him to suffer. They forgot about those. Jesus points them back to it. Jesus was determined they must face that reality and not put it aside. Because again, why did Jesus come? He came to teach us nice things. Is that why he came? Jesus Christ came primarily to give his life as a ransom for many. And in the process, he taught us a lot of wonderful things, didn't he? But he came to give his life as a ransom. And so Jesus continues there in Mark. He says, I tell you this, Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Now, in some regards, Jesus opens up a can of worms. He doesn't realize that we're almost done our sermon time this morning. And so he, he brings up, but I tell you, Elijah has already come. What? You know, you're going to have to explain that to me, Lord. And so the coming of Elijah as the forerunner of Christ, we know it speaks of Christ's second coming. But what Jesus is saying to them is this, but if you can receive it, Elijah has already come in the form of John the Baptist. And so the man whose name is Elijah, he's the forerunner of Christ's second coming. The man we know as John the Baptist is the forerunner of his first coming. In a sense, he says, Elijah has come in the form of John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is not some sort of reincarnated Elijah. Elijah never died. He was taken, the Bible tells us. Much like the church will be raptured in the last days, Elijah was raptured and taken up into heaven. 
And so some people look at that and they say, well, if he never died, then he could come back. And, and so Elijah, but they asked John the Baptist, are you Elijah? And he said, no, what's the matter with you? No, I'm not Elijah. He lived 800 years ago. All right, I'm John. I'm John the Baptist. So what Jesus is saying here is not that John is Elijah, but that John is Elijah-like. He's a forerunner. And as Elijah will come for the second coming, John came for the first coming. Matthew 11 says, all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, Jesus said, he is Elijah who is to come. Now, why mention John the Baptist at all? Why mention Elijah be, or John being Elijah-like at all? I think it's because of the next phrase. Look at the next phrase there. He says, and they did to him whatever they pleased. And so what are the disciples looking for that they're struggling with? Well, they're looking for a reigning king. And they're looking for Elijah to come and proclaim that reigning king. What's Jesus trying to get them to see? He's going to come as a suffering servant. And just to nail it down, what did they do with the Elijah-like forerunner? Whatever they pleased with him. They killed him. Remember, John was thrown in jail, and then he was eventually beheaded, which essentially is the type of fate that's going to happen to the Messiah. What happened to his forerunner in his first coming, death, uh, rejection, prison, and death, is going to happen to the Messiah in his first coming. Rejection, imprisoned, if you will, beaten in the trial, and then ultimately crucified. John, Jesus here points them back to the reality of the purpose of his first coming. They were having trouble understanding that. And so he keeps going over it with them again and again and again until they do. And I'll remind you of these words. Jesus said this, Mark chapter 10, 45, one chapter away from here. He says, even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And I just want to remind this group here, in case we have any here that don't yet know the forgiveness of sin that is found in Jesus Christ, you're not forgiven of your sin because Jesus went to a cross. You're forgiven of your sin because you applied the work of the cross to your own life. You've recognized, I'm a sinner, and my sin separates me from a holy God. But Jesus Christ, the righteous one, paid the price for your sin. He came to give his life as a ransom for you. And if you're prepared to receive that, we'll have folks up here after service. We'll pray with you. We'll give you a Bible so you can read further into these things and consider these things. The Lord desires a relationship with you through his son. Amen, everyone. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like more information about the church, please visit ccmercer.com or come worship with us in Ewing, New Jersey on Sundays at 10 a.m.